Hello, and welcome to the special episode of the PDR podcast. My name is Dr. Taylor Winkleman. I'm your host and the producer of this podcast, as well as the coordinator of the Next Generation Global Health Security Network. And joining us on the podcast today is our new co-producer, Ms. Jessica Smirker, who is also the Next Gen Deputy Coordinator for Media Engagement. This is a special episode on COVID-19, the novel coronavirus that emerged in Wuhan, China in the final weeks of 2019. This episode was recorded February 6, 2020, and as of 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the day of release, February 14th, 2020, there are 64,447 confirmed cases, 1,384 deaths from the virus, and 7,119 patients have recovered in 28 countries. And now back to the original recording. So in response to this, we wanted to have a special episode that we talk about the outbreak specifically. And joining us today will be Dr. Jonathan Quick. He is the author of The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It from 2018. You can get it at your local library, on Amazon, uh, at any place where you buy books. Uh, Currently, Jono is an adjunct professor of global health at the Duke Global Health Institute. He previously served as president and CEO of Management Sciences for Health, MSH, was the director of essential drugs and medicines policies at the World Health Organization, and was a resident advisor for MSH in health system development and financing in Afghanistan and Kenya, the chief of staff, clinical director of the U.S. Public Health Service in Oklahoma. He also carried out assignments to improve public health in over 70 countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. And he also currently holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Boston University School of Public Health. Okay, so he is really, really knowledgeable in this area and really, really smart. And we are very, very grateful to have him. One final note, this is a phone interview. So any variation in the sound quality is due to interference on the line. So we ask for your patience and understanding with that. So without further ado, we will roll the intro music and get right into the interview. Thank you for joining us. Prevent, prevent, detect, detect, Naturally occurring, naturally occurring, accidental, intentional. The PDR Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of the PDR podcast. Today, we are talking to Dr. Jonathan Quick, also known to friends, colleagues, and very lucky interviewers as Jono, uh, about his book, The End of Epidemics, that he wrote while he was president of uh, MSH. And I'm really interested in this book for many reasons, but part of it that I'm very excited about is on page 125, Jono. About halfway down the page, I have this lovely highlighted sentence uh, that (laughs) mentions the GHSA Next Generation Network. And so we wanted to thank you for highlighting the work that that we've done and the work that Ambassador Jenkins did in bringing us to life. And so I just wanted to say that when we at the beginning, because otherwise I'll completely forget as we go through. Well, All right. let me just say on that, I, well, thank you for that. And, and, and thank you for the work that the Next Gen Group does. You know, I think that is so important. It, the world is, is, is going to be uh, your, your world. And it's great that, you, that you've got so many people interested in taking leadership in, in this critical area. So, so thank you. Thank you. We're, we're very proud of our network. Uh, and I should also note for our listeners that we are being joined today uh, and in the future by our our new producer and editor, Jessica Schmerker. Uh, Jess, uh, welcome to the team. <laughs> it's great Thank to have you. you. I am very excited to be here. And the reason this is a special episode, aside from the fact that we get to talk to Jono and that we get to talk about his book, is um, the date of this recording is February 6, 2020. We are in the middle of a public health emergency of international concern with the outbreak of the 2019 novel coronavirus. And as of this morning, um, according to the Johns Hopkins website, there are now 28,350 confirmed cases, 
with 565 deaths. Most of those deaths are in China, but the disease is in 28 countries. And only at the point at this moment, we only have confirmation that 1,382 have recovered. So this is a serious issue. And I would note that even by the time that we get this edited and out, those numbers will have changed. So bear that in mind, everybody. But Jono, before we dive too deeply into your book, I just wanted to get your reaction, your take on the current outbreak. Well, I, I think a um, few things. Um, if, we, if we look at it in the basic uh, prevent, uh, detect, respond, uh, we, we, we've had some good news and a fair bit of bad news in each of those. On the prevent side, it's the risks of, and as far as we can tell from everything now, this came from the uh, wet market in a uh, live animal market in Wuhan. And um, this, is, this is the same scenario that we saw 15 years ago uh, with SARS. The animal out in the bush somewhere, we're still not sure completely which, picks up the virus probably from a vat, uh, people eating a delicacy meat and, and a specialty meat, and being close to that meat, I won't say necessarily eating, being close to it, uh, pick up the virus and um, and then it goes global. Uh, so I think there was there was um, I think on, on the detection side it, it, we we probably lost a couple of weeks with a a recurrent dynamic that happens at the local level of of denial and all. And we need to realize the time factor. Um, and to just put your number in perspective, two weeks ago. Just two weeks ago, we, we, we had uh, 300 cases reported. Within five days, it was four, four times that. Within, within 10 days, it, it was 20 times that. And now it's, I mean, you know, 29,000 versus 300 in just two weeks. That's the time factor. And um, so I, I think that um, um, this is stunning because it is a pattern that we've seen uh, repeatedly and that we, we just um, uh, both globally and nationally and locally just aren't where we should be to make, to keep our world safer. Absolutely. Uh, and, and to that end, talking about this in terms of that critical time that we need to react is so important. So important that um, I've noticed that we have, uh, both written similar analogies. Uh, I don't know if you've been on social media seeing people talking about this, but I have seen I have seen people minimizing the danger of this epidemic because it's not infected as many people as as the season's flu yet. Um, and I say yet because we know that it could get there. We just we don't know what's going to happen next, right? And I've I've been pushing back on them. And one of the things that I have said multiple times to people is you don't ignore your kitchen fire because the house down the road is on fire. And then I read your book and I had to laugh because you use almost the exact same analogy in this necessary time to react. Yeah, I, so I, I think it's in, it's in both. And the point is, whenever there's an outbreak, it's a teachable moment. And I, I think it is important that we, we keep the focus on both the fire in the house and the fire down the street. And um, there's much more uncertainty with the fire in the house right now, uh, a lot of uncertainty. But the point is, there's complacency around, about, around both. I mean, and part of it, there's this horror factor. So um, Ebola, as we all know, set Twitter records because of the horror factor. It'll never go global. But when we had 80,000 deaths two years ago from influenza, um, it was a ho-hum. And that's one where we're, we're basically, the first flu vaccine was 80 years ago for, for troops going into World War II. I mean, we're basically making it the same a trial and error chicken egg growing way that we did 80 years ago. And, and so um, I think it's in both. I, I, I think it's important to focus on the uncertainties and make people um, aware that this is basically a disease X, something that, that's come out of the bush and, and it's, a, it's a new pathogen. And, um, you know, AIDS was a d disease X decades ago, and, and that took us by surprise. 
Uh, Ebola was a disease X, SARS was. And so we need to be vigilant on both and not sink into complacency that leaves us vulnerable. At some point, we have to stop being surprised by this, right? But that does lead into the the basic premise of your book, which I uh, I don't want to go through the whole book because I do want people to actually get interested and read it, borrow it from their libraries or buy it and read it. But you put forth a no, no BS, uh, no holds barred, seven-point plan. It's just seven steps to end epidemics. And the very first one is lead like the house is on fire. And I thought it might be interesting to kind of go through these seven steps and use that as a lens to look at the current outbreak and what we might recommend that our leaders do differently, what we think they maybe should have done if they were following this plan and what we should do next and in the aftermath once this outbreak is over, whether it's over next week or 10 years from now. How do you feel about that? Well, that sounds good. So number one is lead like the house is on fire. Yeah, and I, I really like your analogy of leading like the, in the emergency house is on fire, but there's also basically a, a smoldering fire uh, that's like a fire that gets in the roots of a forest and just smolders, and all of a sudden it, the whole forest is, is on fire. So I, I think that it, looking at it in the context of the, the current outbreak, I mean, there's leadership on the preventive side, as we talked about. And so I do think we ought to give credit uh, where it's due in terms of of China's response, because they did take the heart after SARS. They really worked hard on building the the Chinese Center for Disease Control. George Gao, uh, who's head of that, is a a world-recognized expert in this area. So um, there has been a, a lot done to lay the groundwork. And there's no question in my mind that whatever delays did happen, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that China and the world is in a far better place. And things would have been, um, I think, far worse if they hadn't built the country capacity. So, so there's, been, there's been leadership there. So leadership first needs to start at the top. Um, and there's some egregious lapses on that, which leaders need to take to heart. One of them was in, uh, in World War I, President Wilson. We're in the middle of a world war. Okay, we're fighting a world war. We're getting near the end of it. U.S. president at the time is focused on the war. But he was so focused, he would not listen to, that, to his personal doctor, the, the uh, medical head. And he would not allow any public communication from the federal government, any government involvement. And the result of that lapse in leadership, which is chilling, is that there was a fourfold variation in the mortality among cities uh, who were just doing their their own thing. And we ended up losing 600,000 Americans to flu and in the end, 30,000 troops to the war. So uh, I think leaders at the top need to be vigilant, not just in the outbreak, but in the prevention. Um, and then, you know, at the local level, what, what we learned from the 1918 outbreak, which is still relevant today, is how important it is for local level leadership, especially if your tools come down to uh, self-isolation, quarantine, social distancing. That's a very critical lesson right now, is that local leaders are good communicators and good mobilizers of support. Um, and again, what we saw in, in 1918 was those communities that had good leadership, they had half the death rate or more than communities that didn't have that leadership. Yeah, you know, what I find most interesting about that outbreak is it's commonly known as Spanish flu, which erroneously makes a lot of people think that it originated in Spain. But the honest truth is that Spain was the first country to acknowledge that it had an outbreak and was probably instrumental in preventing it from getting worse than it ended up being. Yeah, it was actually, and the reason why they were the first to announce is because they weren't in the war and they were the only country that wasn't censored. So this business about censoring, and we still censor outbreak news. I mean, that same dynamic um, that kept the other countries from dealing with with the so-called Spanish flu is what happened locally in Wuhan and happened back in SARS. Those at the political level, first locally, who got the information from health professionals that something different was going on. 
and uh, and they didn't they didn't listen. They thought it was a conspiracy or whatever. And I think that's a lesson that needs to go all the way down to local leaders is listen to your local health profession. They're not going to cry wolf. Their suspicions, and this is one of the leadership challenges, is that you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. It's like the weather prediction. We've reduced weather deaths 95% with good early warning. But there's a point where you say, we're going to evacuate New Orleans or we're not. We're going to evacuate Houston or not. Uh, We're going to call a global health emergency or not. You're not going to be right all the time just because you can't predict nature. People need to understand that. But the decision makers need to understand that they need to look to the health people for the professional judgment and not politicize that decision. That's the other key thing about leadership is you need leadership to implement the recommendations and decisions, top-level political leadership, um, you need them to implement the decisions, but you're on a slippery slope if you let the political considerations override technical ones, recognizing that, you know, you're not going to be right 100% of the time, and that's the damn if you do, damn if you don't, good dynamic. I, you know, I've often used the analogy that the public health community faces the same challenge as the intelligence community, and in that if the intelligence community does its job, you question why they exist because nothing ever happens. And it's it's interesting. Uh, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the lead for that you mentioned the public health emergency of international concern uh, because many of us uh, next gen leadership included were angry when the first meeting of the WHO did not result in a declaration of a PHIC. And all of us were, you know, angry text messages back and forth and emails and op-eds and everything saying, if they don't declare it now, they're going to have to declare it next week or maybe in a year like they did with Ebola, but it's going to happen and we all know it and we don't understand the delay. And then, of course, it was a week later declared a PHIC. And then just uh, less than 24 hours ago, the WHO, I'm reading off of Twitter right now because, of course, I am. WHO issued an appeal for $675 million U.S. to fight the coronavirus. And the tweet from Dr. Tedros is, our message to the international community is invest today or pay more later. And I'm torn about this because I want to give credit where credit's due. I completely agree with his message. But I'm also frustrated with the earlier delay when the entire health community recommended that we declare a PHIC and I would love to know what your thoughts are on the impact of that week delay. I actually think the critical things that needed to happen in terms of uh, exit screening, in terms of mobilizing within China and all, th- those things happen. I, it's always easy in, in hindsight to say, well, you know, um, we should have done this, we should have done that. I'm not going to second judge that committee. I think we get into a, a tricky situation if we do that. And I think the key thing, the key thing is situations will change and new information comes in. The critical thing is as soon as the situation changed, they reconvened, they they made that decision. And and that's where we've gotten into trouble is when situations are changing and um, those at the top keep saying, you know, it's okay, it's okay. That was a big mistake in Ebola, no question. And, And by the way, one of the you know, looking at the dynamics of it, I believe, based on all the circumstances, that one of the reasons why there was a delay in Ebola is that the WHO got hammered for 2009 swine flu when it didn't prove to be all of uh, what it was thought to be. And that's not the first time that reaction to an organization like WHO appearing to cry wolf resulted in more cautiousness the next time around. So I think we need to be careful about that. Yep. Well, rule number one is lead like the house is on fire. And if you if you respond to something that turns out to have been minor, it's much better than if you didn't respond to something that turns out to have been major. So But let me let me just push back a little bit on that because when you have an outbreak where you don't have a vaccine, you don't have a medicine, often you don't have a even a diagnostic. The critical thing is human behavior, public behavior. All of us scientists and doctors in the world aren't, in the end, going to matter if we can't have the trust and confidence of the public to do what's asked. 
and not uh, go around self-quarantine and all, not go underground when wet markets are being. So I think it's really important that the fire's big enough to call out the whole fire department. That's that's fair. And speaking of fire departments, your your second rule is resilient systems and global security. Uh, so how would you apply that principle to this current outbreak? Well, I think what's happened in the last five years since Ebola has been, I think, incredibly heartening. So if you look at where we were in 2014, the international health regulations, the IHR, had been in place, uh, those are their predecessor, for, for 50 years. And we talked about epidemic prevention. In 2014, we didn't have an agreed definition of what it looked like for a country to be prepared. The Joint External Evaluation Tool at WHO, with lots of people's help, created and first published in 2016, didn't exist although it was promised basically 15 years ago after SARS. We didn't have a scorecard that assessed every country on their readiness, which as of uh, last fall with the work of the NTI and Johns Hopkins and the Economist Intelligence Unit, we now have a scorecard that gives us a picture of worldwide what needs to be done. So I think on the resilient systems and global security at the country level, we have a very clear picture of what has to happen. Only about one out of three countries are there yet. So those other two thirds, we need to invest. We need to work hand with hand with them to put in place the prevention, protection and, and treatment. Um, and globally, we now have a monitoring system. And that system is the core to keeping the world safer. So I have a question about the numbering systems. Now that this information is out, and like you had referenced, the JEE scores, the national action plans that go along with those, and the now newly released um, Global Health Security Index, something that Taylor was actually able to work on personally when the tool was in development. Do you think that the combination of this information that can very clearly be seen in a numerical form, combined with this particular outbreak, do you think that there's any room to utilize the two of those combined to kind of motivate people to bring more attention to policymakers who might be putting this on the back burner for now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think people should take a look. It's interesting. If you look at the, uh, the Global Health Security Index for China, it's pretty clear uh, that a weak spot is, first of all, they haven't done the assessment, but there is a weak spot in their food security and their human-animal interface. It's just really clear there. It's one of the weakest parts of the index. So the key thing is interested parties within each country should be familiar with that. Any of the next-gen folks in – how many countries do you guys have members from as a question? We, so I haven't – that's a really good question. I have not checked – in the last month, but last time I checked, we were in over 60 countries. We have over 600 members around the world. And I bet you that collectively those 600 members probably are actually working and contributing to, to systems in maybe uh, 80 or 100 countries. So the key thing is to be familiar with that index, look at the weak spots. The index is a starting point. Then the question is who in the government is responsible for those pieces? develop a work plan, look at the funding, get it into the national budgeting process and all, and, and make the case locally. What's missing, though, in a reporting thing is the global community. So you've got a country-by-country country scorecard, but what we don't have, I think, to the extent we need it, is a scorecard that says, okay, you know, WHO committed this, this donor country committed this, this foundation committed this, this is what's been committed, this is where the, the global war plan, as it were, defense plan is. Because we don't have the accountability group that my former boss, Grove Woodland, had, and that's an important piece. What we need now is the kind of scorecard report out of global commitments that we have for the country ones through the combination of the Joint External Evaluation and the Global Health Security Index. Could not agree more. I think the closest we have to that right now is Georgetown has the the funding index and Resolve also has an index that tracks global commitments. But I don't I don't know that anybody's combined those yet. So that's um, that sounds like a great project, maybe for a next gen member. 
so looking at looking at number three, I think this sort of leads beautifully into it. Um, rule number three is active prevention and constant readiness. And the lack of communication between the human and animal sector seems like a weak point, but correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I acknowledge you are more experienced and, and more expert in this than I am by far. Um, but one of the problems for me is that I notice there's a cycle to these things, right? We have an outbreak, we have funding, we have attention, and then the outbreak ends and everything's okay. And then the attention and funding falls off and we are not able to maintain the same level of readiness that we are in, you know, the year or so following an outbreak. And I feel like that's maybe one of the points that makes me most scared, but I don't know what your perspective on that is. Yeah. So I I know I agree completely. And I think that one of the tools that when it's used is, is really helpful. And that is to have, annual drills, you know, simulations that, that keeps it on people's attention. I think the work that, uh, that Johns Hopkins has done on that with the, the annual series of high-level uh, drills is really important. And I think that's one of the ways just spending you know, a half day a year at the, you know, the state level or the national level, and even if it's a few hours, and the same thing for companies. Companies that are well-drilled they respond and they can help in outbreaks. Companies that aren't prepared can not be so helpful. And so I think that's one of the critical things is to keep the, the attention there. And also we just in this country, and again, it's only was in 2013, we now have a national health emergency preparedness index that comes out every year where state by state, they get ranked in the six different uh, state-specific uh, categories. And I think there's no reason why that can't be done everywhere. And it's, again, a way of bringing to the attention of the people involved the importance of, of preventing and being prepared. Also, in hospitals to do that, um, hospitals that regularly are drilling and thinking through, what would we do if our patients double or triple and are prepared? There was, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a famous picture of a hospital parking lot on the West Coast during the flu outbreak in 2018 that had set up a huge tent, you know, and they, they just hadn't quite worked through the surge part of things. So, yeah, I think, I think that constant attention at each level will help us do the other things. The, the other part about the active prevention is, I mean, it's clearly keeping up on vaccine development, um, on mosquito control, but uh, with global warming um, outbreaks like yellow fever and and Zika, um, there are some concerns there. Yeah, and speaking of those those drills, and specifically the Johns Hopkins ones, uh, Jess, you went to the the one that they last had, didn't you, a few months ago? I um, was on the online one. So it was um, participation and then... I was part of an online community chat. So um, I got to see the layout of it and then discuss it with maybe not necessarily people who were um, physically attending, but online as well. So yeah, it was really interesting. Um, And they made a point of clearly identifying different areas that they needed to work on and different barriers that they came up across during the scenario. One of them particularly was um, battling misinformation Uh, which is something that obviously has been a newer development in recent years, but it's that kind of identifying the new challenges along with kind of wrestling with older ones that we haven't really figured out yet. Yeah. And uh, Jess, you, you probably remember the uh, group chat that we had about, (laughs) about the rumors that were coming out on Twitter about that. Um, And so, so Jono, if if you haven't seen in the face of this outbreak, Mm -hmm. there have been so many um, conspiracy theories and rumors, and this dovetails very nicely into your next, your next rule, which is, um, you know, fatal fictions, timely truths and talks about this phenomenon. I have heard that this outbreak was caused by the Americans, was caused by the Chinese, was caused like intentionally. Um, was deliberately released by the Gates Foundation. All of all of these rumors that are completely unsubstantiated uh, and make no sense. But one of the ones that really, really got to us as a team was a a person on Twitter was 
tweeting about how irresponsible it was of Hopkins to allow a media outlet to talk about that exercise as though it were a real thing. There was an incredibly misleading headline and they were accusing Hopkins of, you know, poor media control and of all of these things and saying, you know, well, they should have clearly identified it as an exercise. And if you look at anything that Hopkins released on it from their press release to their materials, it clearly labels it as an exercise. It clearly says this is a fictional disease. This is not real. This is not really happening. And we ended up um, flagging that tweet for Hopkins and sending it to them and saying, hey, just FYI, this is happening. We, we talked earlier about censoring, but this is sort of a much different problem than it was 100 years ago in trying to combat the misinformation that is now absolutely everywhere. And you say in your book that this is something that um, professional comms teams need to do, but what can, what can and what should the rest of us be doing? Well, a couple things um, uh, on the whole... A dynamic of social media, um, because a, a, as we know, there's uh, the usual dynamic is that the fake stuff is more sensational and more believed than the, the real stuff from credible sources. It is a complex issue. There's there's multiple parts to doing that. Um, I think one of the one of the things actually starts in schools, where you get people to and students to look at examples to think through how they verify things, how they, it's what I call learned skepticism. Um, so w- when you get a picture of the president of the U.S. And, and his wife appearing to pledge allegiance to the flag with their hand on, on the right instead of the left, you say, hmm, is that possible? Because they're clearly pledging allegiance. And then you say, okay, how can I disprove this? It takes 20 seconds. All you have to do is look which side their hair is parted on and look at all the other pictures on the internet, and you'll see that it's parted on the other side. Your image has been reversed. So begins at school, learn skepticism, how you decide the sources. The other thing that's really important is um, what's called a backfire effect. If people are really holding on tight to a belief, the anti-vax movement is a good example, and you provide them with, with... with facts to counter that and, and cited sources and, and, and evidence, they'll hold on to the belief even tighter. So it's, it's the trusted sources part of it. And so in the context of an outbreak, got to reach out to the different sources, the, the different stakeholder groups, and engage them so that they're out there talking within their, their own community. And um, the example from, from West Africa was that the story that people know from the West is that the health systems were a mess and there was, there was slow response, all of which is true. So there's a big outbreak. What they don't hear about is how quickly um, the outbreak subsided. Once, in taking the example of Sierra Leone, you got the 4,000 market women, 20,000 traditional healers, the religious leaders, the local media all informed and, and brought into the process. And so I think, I think that, is, that is a part of it too. It's not us <laughs> kind of white coat experts telling people, but it's actually people within the, the, the community of folks they trust. So it's, it's, it's reaching out to those different groups. And, you know, this was sort of the, the idea that we had when, when Ambassador Jenkins pointed to us uh, in a room and said, hey, you four or five people, I want you to go start uh, an emerging leaders or a next generation group, go do something. And we said, okay, part of our initial thoughts were the next time an outbreak happens, we don't want to have to make these relationships so that we know who to trust and we know who to talk to. We want to set those relationships up earlier. And one of the things that I have been noticing, and I'm trying to lead into your next rule here, and I'm really smooth at my transitions, you can tell, and uh, is that we need to support each other. We need to support our experts. We need to support our scientists. And we have to do all of that in the face of these conspiracy theories and rumors and people who don't believe that scientists are working with the public's best interest at heart. And one of the things that super frustrates me 
um, as an educator and as a, as a public health person is that I have to fight against people who believe that Andrew Wakefield was framed. And I have to fight against the, you know, less than 1% of scientists who are not necessarily working in the public good. Um, and yet if we don't support those scientists, we will fail to respond to these epidemics and we will fail to develop the necessary detection and response tools that we need. How do we overcome that? How do we get to the point where we really, and your fifth rule is disruptive innovation and collaborative transformation. We're good at it within our circles. We're good at it within and amongst each other. How do we get that public buy-in? How do we get that policymaker buy-in so that we can do what we need to do to end these outbreaks faster? Well, I think part of it is that whenever we, whenever we do have big successes, that uh, we really are good at communicating that and getting the word out about that. Um, I think when you've got um, countries uh, like um, uh, Rwanda, who is on the pathway to virtually uh, eliminate cervical cancer with a big vaccination program and using that technology, I think that needs to get communicated clearly that the research was supported, the public policy supported using the evidence for a program. Uh, the public was brought on board and many women's lives are, have been saved and will be saved as a result. So I think touting the, the, uh, the successes, I think that's a, really, that's a really key part of it. I think that um, with, with one of the new, one of the other of many things that came out of the unfortunate um, deaths of, in West Africa is uh, the uh, CEPI, the group that's doing um, innovative vaccines for outbreaks. So when we get some of the products from that group, we really need to tout that. So I think it's building on the on the successes and communicating them well. And, and also, I mean, also reminding people that I think there are probably very few people in the sort of uh, medicine skeptical community who don't have themselves or first or second degree relatives who are alive today because of modern medicine. So I think, you know, you got to look back to people's own story. And yeah, they benefited from good science. We all have. And, you know, one of the things that I found most optimistic about your book and, and was genuinely excited to see was that, again, you used a, an analogy that I've, I have used when arguing with people about this many, many times, where, where you say literally an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I will often say an ounce of prevention costs a pound of cure because we have to go through all of these outbreaks to learn that we should have done something earlier. But the point that you make in your book and in rule six is that if we invest wisely, we save lives, but it's, it's not expensive. The cost of ending epidemics is not expensive. It's a dollar per person per year for every person on the planet for 20 years. I would just love to know how you got to that number. I believe it. I just, I would love to know the history or the story behind that. Well, this is basically the addition uh, to what's already being invested. And there are different ways of calculating it. And I mean, truth be told, even if it's now with the world even more complex, $2 per person per year, that's still a pittance compared to what outbreaks like, um, like the current one costs. So uh, roughly two-thirds of that is the money that it is required to upgrade health systems in particularly low-income countries to be able to meet the, um, the international health regulations requirements. So, so there's that investment. And about 25% is for a series of, of critical investments in R&D for a universal uh, flu vaccine, for um, vaccines and protective equipment and other things for emerging infectious diseases, some for rapid diagnostics. I mean, that, that's so critical in being able to uh, be quickly triaged so that you don't get backups of people in hospitals and you turn hospitals into, into transmission centers. So rapid diagnostics uh, also a modest amount to look into the whole area of, of mosquito control and and some new technologies on that. So that's that's about about three billion a year. And then there's there's a very modest amount for the uh, emergency response, which could involve stockpiling and and some of those sorts of things. I am prepared to invest. 
I, I am happy to give my dollar or $2 or $20 to make that happen. Uh, and I, I think that is so important that you actually made this your final point. The thing that your average citizen, your average stakeholder, and all of us are stakeholders in this, right? All of us have a stake in global health because all of us are affected when global health is threatened. Your last rule is ring the alarm, rouse the leaders. And it's really just citizens and concerned stakeholders caring and making it known that they care about this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, we've learned, I think, a lot about how you move agendas from watching some of the different um, outbreaks and the different uh, activist groups. It's really fascinating. Uh, there have been several times during during uh, my time in, in global health where uh, I've seen the impossible happen, things that a lot of people thought were impossible uh, happen. And w- one of them is the uh, movement from a point where uh, in the year 2000, we were 20 years into the first new human pandemic of modern times, which was AIDS. It had been turned into a chronic disease in the North with people living almost as long with AIDS as without because we had the medicines, but it was a death sentence in the South. And $12,000 per person per year and no money and, and no evidence that we could build the systems, a lot of people thought it was impossible. Um, the the activists of the world and a lot of other people um, said <laughs> we disagree. And going back and talking to the um, the group in South Africa that fought the denialism that President Mbeki at the time, uh, President of South Africa, had um, and wouldn't allow treatment that probably cost a half a million lives. Their strategy, I saw what I remembered was the a guy named Zaki Achmet, HIV positive, in the street fighting for it. But going back and talking, there was a very clear strategy. First, get the evidence. Uh, Then uh, mobilize people and use the media with clear strategic objectives. And if that doesn't work, go to the courts, use the laws. And it was a very clear strategy. Um, and so I think um, getting committed people, getting really tangible goals, you've got to have tangible goals and you've got to have a persuasive human case. You can't just give numbers. You've got to make a persuasive human case. And then you've got to say, here are the things you need to do to take action. Um, and my, my experience in, in working with, with political leaders in different places who support your need, they want it. What they need to know is in real and human problems, uh, in real and human terms, what is the problem? What can be done to address the problem? If we do it, what will be the result and what will the cost be? Very straightforward. And, and I think mobilizing around these critical issues and having a, those clear approaches is, is, um, is a thing that, that has to happen. It's actually the only way to get a sustained effort to make the world safer. I personally loved this part of the book. The mobilizing social activism is something that I hadn't really connected to global health security as a whole. So I really enjoyed kind of diving into that topic. And now that we have the diagnostic information and um, the numerical values that make it easy to assess where each country lies in their global health security efforts, um, I hope and feel, and I want to know what your opinion is, if this is the time for social activism to kind of join ranks with those of us in the global health security field who have kind of felt like we've been screaming into a void for a little bit about um, preparedness and the importance of it and whether or not this is kind of an opportunity to make a big statement on the need for more attention towards preparedness. Similarly, in my brain, how the climate change movement is going on now on a global scale. So I'd love to know what your opinion is on that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for, for a number of years, since I got working when I was with my staff at WHO and then at, at, at MSH, was that sort of communication was people acted as if what they were thinking is that public communication is what you do 
uh, when the real work is done and you have a little extra time and money. And and my my, my what I what I've seen is that good communication is part of getting the job done. And our donors and funders read and remember, and I saw this firsthand, they read and remember the headlines in the newspaper often much better than, the, than our reports. And it's, it's because of this combination of really, really convincing evidence and compelling human stories. And so I, I think it's a skill set that every public health organization needs uh, because we're the ones who, who see and feel and anticipate the impact when things don't happen. And so there's that firsthand kind of passion. And, um, and I think then others, we, you know, come in and, and uh, there, there are, there tend to be activist groups um, around individual health problems, you know, AIDS, TB, malaria, but we also need to, have common cause with all of those groups because in the end, um, the dynamics are, are the same in getting the resources and the public support that's needed to really, um, as I say, make the world safer. I agree. What I would see as the disconnect is, like you said, there's a lot of activism around individual diseases and outbreaks and the consequences of those, but what's definitely missing is kind of a cohesive message from all of those different groups. Yeah, yeah. Well, so to build on this, um, there was a point where I sort of, there was part of me that in the back of my head when I saw somebody speaking out in the middle of an outbreak thinking, well, this is an ambulance chaser. They're just opportunists. That's a wrong way to think. It's a teachable moment. It's an opportunity. And I, I think we need to get clear messages and lessons as we go forward with the current coronavirus outbreak. Um, we need to keep pulling the lessons out of that, presenting them to people, and then we'll come back. Because it was SARS, sadly enough, that accelerated progress on the international health regulations. After two decades, I mean, it was the World Health Organization, all the health leaders voted in 1995 to say, we need stronger international health regulations, 1995. That can got kicked down the road until 2005 after SARS. And then they said, well, we need a stronger measurements. And that was another decade. So I think the reality is that these sort of outbreaks will do the messaging and understand what are the different elements will help to accelerate things and bring people in um, who a, a portion of the people who get engaged with this issue through the coronavirus outbreak We'll stay with it. And that's important. Stay with the broader epidemic prevention, not just with coronavirus, but once they will stay with the overall movement to uh, make the world safer from, from epidemic and pandemic diseases. Yeah, that would be my one hopeful coming out of this entire situation, as sad as, as concerning as it is, that it would kind of reignite that fire under people to kind of pay a little more attention to it. And there is a cost to these outbreaks and a cost to these lessons. And uh, I literally just got the notification on my phone four minutes ago um, from the Washington Post. Uh, so Li Wenlang was the Chinese doctor who um, sounded the alarm at the end of December. And he died last night from mm. coronavirus. And I, I literally, as we're recording this, just got this notification. Um, and We've already had over 500 deaths and we have as many cases now in two months as we had from two years of the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Um, but it, this is a, um, I think a very stark reminder of the cost of these lessons that we're learning and of the responsibility that we as a public health community and we as a, as humans have to each other to respond to these things appropriately and to take, to take these things seriously. And this is not exactly, I always like to end our, our um, podcast on a, on an, on an optimistic note, because this is a, this is a difficult topic and, and um, the, the health community often, as you note in your book, often pays the heaviest price in terms of, of, proportionally they tend to 
to be the hardest hit by these outbreaks. And this appears to be no different. But I would like to thank you so much for this book, for this roadmap that we have to move forward, um, and and to invite you to share any any final thoughts on what we can do with this outbreak and what we can do in general um, moving forward. First, thank you for that that the update. Um, and I think you've you've said it well about the human cost. And ironically, it was um, the person, health person that first identified SARS and said, this is different, something different's going on. His name was Carlos Urbani, and he uh, ended up succumbing to, to SARS. So there, there, there is a cost to being at the front line. And, and, um, and I think you very eloquently shared that, that, that um, reality. Um, I think, well, first of all, I, I think, the dynamic is that we do get, we do move ahead. These these kinds of outbreaks, that's going, what's going on now with the coronavirus does mobilize people. The other thing is the, the next gen group and in, in, in your leadership and, and the, the fact that we have such a mobilized network worldwide, I mean, that makes me optimistic. Um, the fact that the people who have come into this from a variety of this field, from a variety of different angles, are, are staying in it, and Gates Foundation and the um, leaders from 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 uh, the universities and other organizations. And the other thing is, I think we've got a much stronger network of national leaders, really good, well-trained health leaders in the Africa Centers for Disease Control and China Center for Disease Control. So I think we're building a really powerful network both internationally and at the national level. And it's the end, it's, it's that network of capable, informed, engaged people who really do care about having a, a safer world. I think that's what makes me feel optimistic. And, uh, and I am, I, I think, because we, we know what needs to be done. It's affordable and it, it's doable. So that, that gives me, uh, that leaves me optimistic. Jono, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and and for those incredible words of optimism. I want to invite you to, to come back and talk to us again whenever you feel like it. Um, you're a delight to talk to. Thank you to our listeners. You can like, you can subscribe, you can rate us, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. PDR podcast is written and produced by Dr. Taylor Winkleman. All opinions expressed are the speaker's own personal opinions and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any organization the speaker may have been affiliated with in the past or present. Music by Hyde. You can like, subscribe, and download the PDR podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.